Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. And welcome to a special episode of the Field Guides. Typically what we do is pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot. But today we have a special bonus episode for you. And we're going to do something that we've never done before on a Field Guides episode, and that is go out with the general public. Do it live! <laughs> <laughs> So back in June of 2018, Steve and I attended the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage and they invited us to lead a hike. Now if you're not familiar with it, we've mentioned it a few times on the show before, but the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage is a gathering of naturalists, environmental educators, nature lovers from really all over and they descend on Allegheny State Park, which is in southwestern New York, right on the Pennsylvania border. And for the weekend after Memorial Day, there are hikes, talks, evening programs, there's music, there's food. It's just this great gathering of nature enthusiasts. So if you've never experienced it before, folks, check it out. You can, if you just type in Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage, it should come up uh, on any search engine. But we do plan to be there in June of 2019 as well. Yeah, it's really some of my best memories as a naturalist in this area. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's such a cool place to go. A lot of really, really bright people <laughs> leading some pretty great walks. I always learn tons whenever I go there. Yeah. Now, when we were contacted to potentially lead a talk, we weren't sure what to do. So in the end, we decided to do a program called The Skeptical Naturalist. Yeah. And we took people out and talked about some of the misconceptions that people might have, just general nature misconceptions. And we also shared some of the most interesting things we've ever come across doing research for the podcast so far. Yeah, yeah. It was like a best of plus a little bit of extra. Yeah. So the program lasted about an hour. Uh, we trimmed that down because there was a lot of just chit chat along the way. Yeah. But. I was very happy with how it turned out. I had a great time. Yeah, I know. What did we have, like a thousand people there? Uh. <laughs> well, when Steve and I left that morning, we were researching in our cabin, and we had no idea what to expect. Yeah. There, there aren't sign-ups. You know, people just register to come to the, the whole event, but they don't sign up for individual programs. Yeah, and I told Bill, I said, Bill, if it's just me and you and Rich and, and Linda, Let's just go for a walk, you know? <laughs> like I was ready for it to be a failure. And then our best guess was we knew there was at least like 60 people there. Yeah. There was an article that quoted more than twice that at a minimum. <laughs> fake news, I think. Yeah, but... that's a, but, but a fake news that I like. <laughs> yeah. And I think we've, we've mentioned this on another episode before, but it's worth mentioning again. At the, the gathering spot where everyone goes to meet the leaders each hour or so, when the hikes and talks are beginning, a new round of hikes and talks. So you go to a certain spot. We were standing next to our sign that said the skeptical naturalist. And there was a big crowd gathered there. We were very happy to walk up and we were just kind of getting to know people. And we told them about the field guides and I yelled out to the group, how many people here are field guides listeners? Crickets. Nobody. <laughs> I, I'm so upset we didn't get that on recording. Uh, that would have been so good. It would have been perfect. But we didn't start recording until we actually got to the site. So we're going to start the recording here. And you'll get to hear what it's like to be out in the woods with me and Steve and a, a big group of people. And we're going to start the recording. Steve and I are giving a little bit of background on ourselves. Yeah. But then the walk actually begins we go through the usual process of introducing ourselves on mic. 
Rich is recording for us. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a couple spots where there's a little bit of mic noise that's hard to avoid when you're working with a big group like that. And then some noise that's hard to avoid when you're working with yeah. Rich specifically. <laughs> and there are a few comments that people make during the hike, things that aren't necessarily correct. Yeah, um, like you suck. <laughs> Get off the stage, buttheads. <laughs> well, I was thinking more of the specific natural history uh, oh, comments. Oh, right, right. But we'll address those in the episode notes. So yeah. I would recommend anyone just to check out the episode notes because some people make comments about whether porcupines are hibernators and if newts have more than one terrestrial stage. And we're trying to be very nice and kind on the, on the hike, so yeah. we don't just come out and say, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But we hope you enjoy it, folks. And if you can, if you get the chance, come to the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage. would love to see you there. Yeah, enjoy the hike. <laughs> and then about 12 years ago, I left to be a classroom teacher. Uh, so I still volunteer out of Beaver Meadow. Uh, I do some bird banding, and that's actually how I met Steve. He came out as a volunteer bird bander. And we just got along well, and over the past few years, we said, you know what? We want to have a chance every month to get outside. We're both so busy, it's just easy for two, three months to go by, and we haven't been outside or haven't spent time with field guides. So we started this podcast. And Oh, let me jump in. Another reason we started it was because I was working in a fisheries lab, and I'm not a fisheries guy, <laughs> and I needed to start looking at other papers and publications just yeah. to remain sane anyway so we started the podcast i've talked to bill about it we started it and it's been great yeah. i actually left the lab though so <laughs> and now, now i should be starting a new lab in the fall but so yeah. you're entering a master's program for plant physiology or plant genetics uh it's it's like a 50 50 shot right now and when yeah. we started the podcast you know we took a topic we were doing research and it was mostly for us and over the course of recording episodes this idea emerged that we were approaching natural history skeptically uh, because as an environmental educator I was always hearing things from other people from people on hikes or from other naturalists and I just kind of accepted them as, as gospel as truth but a lot of them through research I found portions of them are true or they're just completely wrong uh, we joked in one episode that every month we should have ignorance corner uh, <laughs> where something that i've taught to many people as being true is actually not true at all <laughs> wait do you, do you want to maybe start with a quick example sure because i know i'm sure plenty of you have probably had other leaders talk to you about this but who here has had a talk about ticks does anyone know that using oil to get them off is the best way to get them off what? What's yes. another way to get off a tick? Peanut butter. Burn it with a match. Tweezers. Go around it with a finger. Oh yeah. Okay. Pee on them. I will say, I, I was being sarcastic about the oil though. <laughs> Not only through our own research, but through meeting with Wayne Gall, who's another guy who's been here doing programs. That's a really bad way to get a tick <laughs> off. Like putting, trying to smother them or make them uncomfortable in any way is a bad idea because the whole way you get infected with something like Lyme disease is when they are regurgitating things back into your body and uh, smothering them like that is a really good way to transfer disease from the tick to you. <laughs> so really the only thing you wanna do is have really nice fine tweezers and just very gently pull at the, the mouth part of the tick, the part that's actually like attached to your skin and just really gently, it could take 15 minutes, yeah. but they'll eventually just release it and you'll be much better off. But you could also 
keep the tick, send it in to the CDC or the New York State Department of Health and, and get it tested to make sure that you're safe. But don't listen to all these people that are like Vaseline or oil and because it is slightly more dangerous than just removing yeah, it. You're getting them. irritated. Did I get them on my pets? I have a tick spoon that I bought. Is that a good way? It's essentially the same thing, yeah. It's, it, it, using it it's kind of like a really tight V, right? Yeah, right. yeah. 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 So you want to pull them out perpendicular yeah. from the point of insertion. It seems to work well. Right? Yeah. It's something called a, a tick twister. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> apparently the twisting motion causes them to release. And mm. it's, it's, it's so much better than the uh, key type. So I did actually have, a couple weeks ago, I woke up and um, felt something up near my armpit. I thought it was a pimple, but when I went into the bathroom and looked, I saw these legs. <laughs> and he was attached. So I've had ticks on me a couple times before, but was so startled I just ripped them right off. <laughs> so this one, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this the right way. And I should have filmed it. <laughs> um, my wife got me a nice set of tick tweezers. So I went to pull it out, and when they attach, there are compounds in their saliva that act like a cement. To really cement them to your body but they have some anesthetic properties as well so it's hard for you to feel that they're there mm -hmm. uh, they're very ingeniously evolved so we don't know that they're up to what they're doing yeah you can't feel this tiny little flat it, uh, wh what would it be it almost looks like a like a harpoon yeah. that <laughs> sticks right into your skin and then they cement themselves into you and uh, eventually on their own they would presumably release something else that dissolves the cement maybe right. and then be able to pull themselves out but yeah, so they could do it without you feeling it at all. So Their hypostome has bars pointing backwards. So when I went to pull it out, it actually lifted up the skin. And I really had to work it for a while before it finally came out. And have you heard that you shouldn't leave the mouth parts in? Yes. Okay. When we talked to Wayne about it, we actually had him on the podcast last spring to talk about ticks. And he said, if you leave the mouth parts in, it's not a big deal. They're so small that your skin will just eventually expel them like uh, a splinter. And leaving the mouth parts in is not going to lead to an infection if you're not already infected. Uh, he said he's seen it, people actually causing more damage trying to dig the mouth parts out because they're so concerned about getting them out. Mm -hmm. um, so it looked like I had a little piece left in and, and I just left it in there. Did, did you put anything on after you got them out, like antiseptic or anything? I just put some alcohol on it. And What about antibiotics? So if you're going to get treated for Lyme disease, it's about a two-week course. So it can take anywhere from three to four weeks for symptoms to emerge. And because I looked into it, I'm like, I, it would have been a long time. It had been a year since we had talked about ticks and learned about mm -hmm. ticks. So I actually went back and looked through our notes. And, and I guess the ring can appear and you not get it, or it doesn't appear and you can get it. Like there's all these weird variations to the actual symptoms of Lyme disease. So. It's not always so clear cut anyway. So if it, yeah. if it does happen, when it happened to me, I found the best course was to alert your primary physician. You can get tested right away, but as I said, your body's not gonna build up um, those markers that they're looking for probably for a few weeks. So if you get tested right away, it, can, it could show up as negative. So you might wanna get tested multiple times if you're really worried about it. So I was waiting three or four weeks I was waiting at the insertion point to see if it got worse. You've heard that a bullseye can develop, right? But that only develops in 25 to 50% of people. Okay. The good news for me was that most of the research that we looked into pointed to the fact that the tick has to be attached usually for 36 hours. 
Anything less than that, and the chance is very slim that if it has the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, that it's going to affect you. So it needs to be on you for about a day and a half. Mm -hmm. There's a couple papers out there we came across that there's some evidence in mice of infections occurring earlier, but those right now, they're definitely outliers. And uh, I just want to say, and we, should, we shouldn't stay on this for too much longer, yeah. but be cautious, be but cautious. it's not something to be really worried about. And we have a good example of what is good to do, light colors with your pants tucked <laughs> into your socks. There's a lot of, there yeah, go. we got a nice model for us right here. Yeah. You want to look super stylish, you want to tuck your pants into your socks and yeah. walk around town like that because you forgot you did this earlier in the day. Grocery <laughs> store. Yep. Yeah. All right, our unpaid intern, everyone. Hey. <laughs> All right. so. Folks, what we're going to do to start off, Steve and I have to do our intro. So since we are trying to record this, the intro just takes a few seconds, but we will want you to participate, okay? And then we're going to head off onto the trail. Oh, boy. <laughs> Doing the intro without it written in front of me. All right, okay. so. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill, and a bunch of other people at the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage. Let's hear ya. <laughs> and what we're going to do today and for many future episodes, is to give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the trail, in the woods, and in the field. Ah, I messed up, I always mess up though. <laughs> Go for it, do it again. Uh, no, no, we're good. Okay. And then, uh, <laughs> wait, what's the last part? Each month we pick a natural history topic, research the science on that topic, bring you out into the woods, or bring you out into the field, and tell you everything we learned. But today we're gonna do something a little different. So we have this wonderful group of people here, and we are in Allegheny State Park in the southern tier of New York, and we are at the Eastwood Meadows Trail. We're going to be going out into the woods and doing two things. We're going to be sharing some of the greatest hits from past episodes, things that we've discovered, things that we've learned, and we're also going to be talking about the things that we encounter along the trail. And hopefully some of you folks will be sharing your knowledge of what's around us as well. So maybe we can uh, start moving. Right. Yeah. We usually record like two and a half hours of material and edit it down to about an hour. So. <laughs> we cut out most of what Steve said. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you heard me, guys. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I wanted to share one, a, a great example of being a skeptical naturalist. So raise your hand if you've ever heard that jewelweed, also called spotted touch-me-not, it's an impatience. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that that cures poison ivy. Okay. Well, it doesn't cure it, but it does stop it. My daughter used it within sure. 20 minutes. All right. So I heard that for years and years, and, and there usually was the little extra shot to make the story wonderful that there's a Native American saying that wherever you found poison ivy, somewhere nearby, jewelweed was growing. So a couple summers ago, right around the time we started the podcast, I sat down and actually looked back into research. What do you think? True, not true? Not true. Not, Not true. true. All right, well, I'll tell you. Most of the references go back to the study from the 50s that did find a good effect, that jewelweed helped with the itching, helped with the swelling. Now, there were two subsequent studies, one in the 80s and one in the 90s, that looked back and said, well, what they did is they would take the plant and they mixed it in with water and they would apply that to poison ivy. So these two teams said, maybe it was just the water. <laughs> and just washing it helped. So those two studies, they tested several different methods, just water, and then they tested jewelweed on its own, they tested soap, and what they found is there was not much effect 
from jewelweed that soap or even just water seemed to do better soap and water seemed to do the best but then there were just recent studies in 2011 and 2012 that said well wait a minute those studies in the 80s and 90s they didn't use the whole plant <laughs> they took stem extract okay and that's why steve and i say on a lot of a lot of episodes you got to go beyond the abstract so if you know about scientific papers there's an abstract that kind of gives you an overview but then if we read the abstract and it seems like we're interested we'll go into the discussion part definitely mm -hmm. of the paper and that's where these things come out these fine details so these two studies recently what they found they used a whole bunch of different methods they used mashed plant they used stem extracts lots of different methods and what they found was that jewelweed is effective because it has these chemical compounds called saponins <laughs> So it's a, it's a type of glycoside, if you, if you know about chemistry, but it creates foam that's very much like soap. So why do we get a reaction from poison ivy? What's in poison ivy that causes the reaction? Do you know? So there's an oil, and what's it called? Urishal, yeah. It's, it was actually found in Japan, so it has kind of a Japanese-sounding name. It's an oil, right? What do you need to break up oil? Soap. So, what these studies found is that the best thing you can use is soap and water because that's going to break up the oil but if you're out in the woods and you come across poison ivy and, and you think you may have contracted it take some jewelweed mash it up because those saponins they're the next best thing do you know okay. anything about spit and soap spit and soap yeah like you got a bar of soap but you happen to spit and then use that would that work Sure. Oh, I, yeah. yeah that would help. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that the soap that, that really helps to break up the oil. So, is jewelweed effective? Yes. 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 yes, it is. It is effective. But when you buy those, you pay $12 for those bars of jewelweed soap, <laughs> it's the soap that's really more effective. <laughs> you can just buy soap. <laughs> and I, I, think, I think it goes unsaid, but I think what a lot of people assume is jewelweed's better than soap. I think that's the assumption. But it's, it's no different. Natural. Yeah, because it's natural. <laughs> and I mean, a lot so of people are like, oh, it's natural. It's good for me. Uh, poison ivy is natural, too. Yeah, there's a lot of bad <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> ricin, I don't know. Lots of, yeah. And is it true that it grows in the same areas? They Confirmation the bias. Area. Like if you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, it, it works. And when you don't see it, you're not really thinking about it. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. So jewelweed definitely does like wetter areas, but poison ivy has a, a greater variety of habitats it could grow in. Mm -hmm. Can you get poison ivy just by standing near it? No. no. Some people can. Yes, no. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, they get it in their lungs. But how? Burning, <coughs> Burning it. Yeah. Because I've had a lot of people tell me, oh, I'm so allergic, I just get poison mowing ivy by it. standing near it. Okay. When someone's mowing it. But the, it's, called, it's called contact dermatitis. Right. So you somehow have to come in contact with the oil. So possibly if it gets into the air somehow, Burning, I've heard lots of horror stories yeah. about people burning poison ivy accidentally. Yeah. And also, I know a lot of other people, especially people like some botanists that I've hang out, hung out with, they're like, you can't just brush up against the plant and you'll get it. Like, you can't get it that way. I'm like, I don't know, though, because sometimes the plants get damaged and the usual can stay on a surface for a really long time. It has yes. a long shelf life. So It can stay active yeah. at the Museum of Natural History in, in New York in their herbarium. They took out a... a specimen of poison ivy that was about a hundred years old, the oil was still active. 
So yeah, it's tough stuff. You can rub against it on your clothing and get it a week later yep. if you don't wash your clothes. So I've heard about dogs too. I've had yeah. I take it from someone who is so allergic. Yeah. <laughs> steroid shots. Oh wow. And I'll tell you something, if you don't wash it off within 10 minutes, if you know you've brushed up against it, mm -hmm. you know, there's a You're good chance it. it will get under your skin yeah. because the oil does get absorbed. Grab some jewelry. After about 10 or 20 Grab minutes. Well, yes. I'd say by the time you mash it all up, <laughs> and prepare it, you're already f <laughs> uh, oh, we're gonna have to bleep I'd that out. Wash, <laughs> I'd wash, I'd, that's okay. I wash. I'd wash off. They watch Netflix. I wash. I wash it off. If you have soap or water or anything, you can rinse it off right away, and there's a good chance you've diluted it enough right. that you may not have uh, a strong reaction. As quick as possible. Yeah, right? you yeah. gotta go fast yeah. if, if you know you're exposed. And that's the thing. Some people are more allergic than others too. And, and speaking of that, I wonder who here thinks they are or knows they are immune to poison ivy. No such thing. No. Takes no. a while. We had someone say that they had a cow that ate poison ivy and they drank the milk and you didn't get it? But I don't know if I was over around. I don't know if it would transfer through the milk. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Ag school says that they've gone on all these nature hikes and people say that they're not allergic and everything. She says by the end of the season, Everybody is happy. Really? Yeah, right. there's nobody. It just takes a while. But the lady it, back there of exposure. Right? You didn't yeah. get it. Well, well I suspect it. I had a very, very bad case of poison ivy as a very small child. I played in it and it was all over me, even in my mouth. And my husband gets it just walking through the woods. I spend a lot of time in the woods. I've never had it since. And I've gone on some of the same hikes and areas with him. We come back, he gets it, I don't. You don't. So Interesting. I, I mean, I yeah. can't gotta, confirm. I haven't played with it on purpose. You gotta find a patch of poison ivy, roll around. Yeah. I, know, I, know well, I have to tell you, <laughs> I have to tell you, I used to roll around <laughs> in it when I was younger, yeah. and I didn't get it. It takes a while. Now, that's also, I've... Then it, it just I, I've also heard of that where you can have an immunity to it or at least a tolerance to it yeah. but eventually your eventually body won't be able to handle it with allergies I've heard it's so weird and I don't know which one to be more skeptical of right. sometimes where sometimes people are like oh just give yourself a little bit at a time and you eventually become more immune to it <laughs> But then I've heard the opposite, where like, maybe the first time you get stung by a bee, you're okay. Second yeah, time, you're okay. Exactly. Third time, exactly. you're not okay. Yeah. And, you, and this can be a very long time span between each each sting. It could be a couple of years or whatever, and something's changed. You've just given us a topic for an episode. Yeah. So we need to look into the research about poison ivy immunity. So we'll look into it, yeah. I That's used awesome. to pull it for the Nature Conservancy. As an intern on Long Island, they'd yeah. send me on the trail first, and I would hand pull the poison ivy out. And you were okay? I was fine. Yeah. I got it about 10 years ago for the first time. I got a systemic yeah. case of poison ivy, because wow. they didn't realize we were working on a tree house in the evening after work, clearing the vines and stuff from the ground. I had coveralls on, and every evening I come out, put the same coveralls on, mm. sit in the car, go to the lumber yard. <laughs> then in the morning, I'd have a suit with a skirt, legs on the side of the car. <laughs> and I thought, gee, I'm getting bites. We're working at night, getting yeah. mosquito bites. In a week's time, everywhere. Wow. <laughs> Extreme exposure. Yeah, yeah, I'd say. Bill and I spend a lot of time off trail, so we're constantly in tick territory, constantly in poison ivy and wood nettle territory. I have never got it but I still have no idea. Like, I, I want to say that that might be a tiny bit of evidence that I'm immune, but I, I used to work as a botanist and we'd always go in these completely wild areas. Sometimes the areas were 
all wood nettle and you were constantly burning through the whole thing and it was horrible eight hour days in wood nettle. Up past your waist, if you guys wow. can understand that, and field pants that are super thin. But also, I've also been in areas that are the exact same, but with poison ivy everywhere. You're like going through huge swaths of poison ivy and I've been super lucky. I know my brother's not immune to it. He sent me a picture a couple of years ago where his hands were covered in blisters. He was doing a lot of weeding and uh, yeah, so I'm assuming it has something to do with genetics. So at least right. <laughs> my brother got the, the short end of that straw, so. All right, so uh, All right, so why don't we move on a little bit? Yeah. And folks, that was perfect. Thank you for sharing your own stories. That's exactly what we're going for. So we're gonna move ahead. Steve, you wanna take yeah. the lead there? Sure. Could you move down just a little farther? Yeah. Sorry. I was just telling people, someone asked how they could find our podcast. We, we are on iTunes. We're very bad marketers. We have business cards. We left them at the cabin. Both of us left <laughs> yeah. them, yeah. So I actually have to, just have a quick question. It's just an anecdote I want to share. And this is just about being skeptical in your everyday naturalist type lives. Who here collects fiddleheads or has eaten fiddleheads? So you guys know, what species do you collect? Ostrich fern. Ostrich fern, right. Good. And uh, you know what they can be confused with? So, oh. <laughs> yeah, ostrich fern is totally fine. Uh, do you guys, does everyone here know what a fiddlehead is? Just an early developing fern. I was recently on Facebook, the, you know, one of the greatest places to find true things. <laughs> and, uh, and someone posted a picture in a, in a naturalist oh, no, group. Fine. All it was, was a picture of a fiddlehead. Just a bad picture of a fiddlehead that if you could identify it from that fiddlehead, uh, at least very confidently, I'd be surprised. Everyone was commenting, wow, that's a fiddlehead. You can eat that. <laughs> and, and every now and then sprinkled in would be a hero saying, no, guys, don't. Like, you can only eat certain species. <laughs> and I just want to make sure that that you guys watch out for stuff like that don't trust people you know if you're on a, if in a mushroom group or a fern group or whatever <laughs> saying like oh you should eat this or you can eat that be Just, skeptical yeah and one of our teachers sandy geffner he, he does a lot of wild edibles type stuff and he always says edibles are great but you have to know your id first like that's this the first is the id and the second is knowing where it's growing because if it's growing on like an old site that has a bunch of toxins in the ground you also probably don't want to harvest from that site so well, as my friend likes to say everything's edible one <laughs> yeah almost everything out here there's a difference between edibility and palatability right is it tasty is it good to eat someone i was at a, an edible plant hike once and someone was eating maple leaves. We why? <laughs> you know, I don't know why you'd want to do that, but. Bill actually has two really quick anecdotes about things that people ate. Someone was eating Jack in the Pulpit. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, Carol, where's Carol Griffiths? Right here. Okay, so Carol, Carol's a volunteer at Beaver Meadow. She just got a, an award <laughs> for her volunteer service. Um, give her a hand. Hey, Carol. So we were on, when I was at Beaver Meadow, we were on a volunteer hike once. If any of you have been to the stenciling class with Lois Donovan here, I think it was Lois, you can ask her, one of the gentlemen volunteers, we were on a hike. And if you're familiar with Jack in the Pulpit, in the late summer, early fall, it gets this bright red cluster of berries near the forest floor. At this point in the year, if you see Jack in the Pulpit, it grows a, a cup-shaped leaf with a lip over the top. Okay, that, that's the flowering part. But 
once it's pollinated, it eventually turns into this red cluster of berries. But it's a member of the Arum family, and some members of the Arum family have calcium oxalate crystals. And a good way to think of calcium oxalate in that form, it's like microscopic little knives. Okay. <laughs> or toothpicks. They're kind of sharp on both ends, I guess. They're knives kind of needle like. Yeah. <laughs> no, I find. For those of you who want to eat toothpicks, go ahead. <laughs> so. That's right. That's right. So. This, this volunteer, I'm not going to say who, said, oh, Lois, try these. So she popped a bunch into her mouth and she was chewing them up. And she said when her mouth was closed, it didn't really taste like anything. But as soon as she opened her mouth and took in a breath, she said it was like her entire mouth was on fire. Oh. Uh, so wow. as far as edibility, don't just eat anything anybody hands you. <laughs> Be skeptical. Yeah, that would be yeah. related to skunk cabbage then. That's right. Yes. So skunk cabbage also this has calcium oxalate crystals. So you can get rid of it by drying it. So you'll find references to skunk cabbage being edible or Jack in the Pulpit being edible. Yeah, someone told me to boil skunk cabbage three times in three changes of water. No, well, then why would you eat it? <laughs> <laughs> doesn't sound very good. They, they say the same thing about acorns, and I still struggle with acorns after a bunch. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> What was the other one you were thinking about? Another story. Oh, it was a little. It was a kid. Uh, you were oh, class. skunk cabbage leaves. Uh, when I was just starting out, yeah. I was helping put in a boardwalk at a school on their nature trail, and uh, me and another fella, we were working for Earth Spirit. If you've never heard of them, they're another yeah. great environmental education yeah. group. Yeah. We were working with teenagers from BOCES. They had actually constructed all the materials for the boardwalk, and then we were bringing them out on site and just attaching them together. We're working in the spring and there are these big skunk cabbage leaves. So it grows in wet areas. You get big leaves, you know, about yay big cabbage sometimes. Cabbage leaf size. Yeah, they look like cabbage leaves, big cabbage leaves. And we kept telling the kids, don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it. But if you've ever spent time with high school kids, right? Eventually one of them took it, rolled it up, put the whole thing in his mouth, started chewing. And after about a minute, you just watch the color drain out of his face. And the guy who uh who i was with you know i was terrified at the time i was just starting out i'm like oh my gosh we're gonna get in trouble and the guy I was with is just like told you <laughs> <laughs> yep. the kid's dead now <laughs> <laughs> but speaking to jack in the pulpit this is something that we kind of laugh about every, every episode we get the chance is that I have problems with some common names. I really like when they're descriptive and I don't like when they're not descriptive and sometimes they just seem silly. And I also feel like it's a fun thing. And I think I also learned this from Sandy because I think when I was in the Everglades, he was kind of making up some species identifications. Common names. Common <laughs> names for them, yeah. And, um, and so we made up a few for Jack in the Pulpit because, yeah. uh, you know, whatever, who cares about Jack in the Pulpit? <laughs> We're thinking, uh, if anyone knows the reference, George Michael in the banana stand. Anyone? No? Yeah. Or or Ripley in the power loader for aliens fans out there. Huh? Yeah. Or uh, what was the last one? Oh, it was Lucy in the psychiatric stand. That one. That one. Uh, most people would know. But really, have fun with common names. None of this stuff is serious. It's all made up anyway. So. <laughs> one one thing I will add is is I know when I was working at Beaver Meadow, a lot of people avoided scientific names because they felt it would. It's off-putting. Ostracize people. And I, and I can definitely understand that idea. I even had some naturalists that I knew that purposely avoided using scientific names, cause exactly for that reason, but wouldn't learn them. But I would have to say, like, kind of once I got over that, because it's daunting. And I think that's part of it, too, just the idea that it's daunting to learn these scientific names. 
when you learn scientific names, all of a sudden you understand all these relationships because you're like, wait a minute, these are in the same genus, they're related. And, and I think right? it's important that I have been criticized when people are like, oh, it's just trivial to know these things. And I'm like, no, you, no. you understand a, an evolutionary relationship. Like there's a deeper understanding to the taxonomy and sure, taxonomy is something we made up it's like the alphabet it's like it's like you know counting number systems but it's important to know those things because it's hard to work in those fields and talk about those fields without knowing the language first and 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 sometimes that's what learning a lot of scientific names and genera and families kind of help you with so and we're still yeah. learning them too oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> steve knows them a lot better don't than quiz I. us yeah. is, is <laughs> dna work now changing oh yeah oh yeah. for sure that's yeah. a big one just because yeah. they look alike doesn't mean they're related. The, the most recent, I think, was 2016, but there's always papers coming out that are going to be considered later when they actually officially redo the taxonomic system yeah. for plants. So with DNA analysis, we're finding that a lot of plants and animals that have been lumped together, we're thinking, oh, they must be very closely related because they look so similar. We're finding that not always or often, but I don't know. What, what was it? A few years ago, they they combined like the snapdragon family and the uh, the plantains. A lot of them was moved into plantaniaceae. I mean, that's like. Do you guys know plantains? Like common plantain, English plantains, like all over lawns. They don't look anything alike. They have beautiful flowers if you look closely, but I wouldn't have guessed it anyway. I guess so. It's it's nice to have this DNA work anyway. There's no and there's no maple family of trees anymore. Oh, sapindaceae. They've moved maple into another family. Oh, really? Yeah. Have, have you guys had lychee fruit? Anyone yeah, ever yeah, tried that? Yeah. It's the same family now. Yeah. Another yeah. soap berry family. Yeah. yeah, you got your um, buckeyes, maples, horse chestnut, you know and lychee. Yeah, they're all sapindaceae now. All right, let's keep moving. All right. So while we're while we're waiting for people to come, one thing I will mention: we talk about poison ivy, and. I'm hoping everybody here is somewhat familiar with what it looks like because we all know leaves of three. Let it be, right? If there's hair, beware, leave it there. If there's four, eat some more. Tell <laughs> that from the Simpsons. One way you can identify, because there's lots of things that have three leaves, right? I can't tell you how many times someone has picked up wild strawberry, you know, and said, is this poison ivy? Picked uh, it up. <laughs> <laughs> you mean if I touch this? <laughs> I'll get dermatitis? Yeah. It usually has three leaflets. I have found it with five though. It's very variable. I was talking to some people about it. It can grow as, as a ground plant. It can grow as a vine, a thick vine that gets large roots coming out of it, adventitious roots. It looks hairy. But if you see those three leaves, it's never going to have an even tooth pattern like strawberry or raspberry. It'll have a few teeth. And sometimes it looks like mittens. It'll have like one big tooth on a leaflet. Another thing to look for, the two lateral leaflets, they'll be touching, but then the terminal leaflet, the one on the end is on a longer stem than the other two. So some people say, oh, well, the leaves are red. Not always. Sometimes when they're young, sometimes when they're old, they'll turn red, but not always. So you want to look for an uneven pattern with few teeth, and then that terminal leaflet on a, a longer leaflet by itself, so that one in the middle. Those are things you can look for. And one other thing you can look for, and it's kind of nice that we're surrounded by some ash and some maple here, is that these plants specifically, and there's not many plants that do it, they have opposite branching for their leaves. And you can see they're, they're exactly like mirrored on the stem. So there's always one opposite the other. Poison ivy won't have that. Poison ivy is, is alternate. So it'll have a leaf and then a, a leaf, you know, like leaf. So. Or it have the three sets of leaflets, three sets of leaflets, three sets of leaflets. You can see on this striped maple, 
how the branches grow opposite each other. Yeah. Where's Linda? Linda Smolarik? Right here. So how, do you remember, how do we tell opposite branches? Do you remember from Sandy? Um, Madcap horse. Madcap horse. Raise your hand if you heard that. Oh, yeah. All right, very good. It's about half. So any kind of identification, trees, wildflowers, it's all a process of elimination, right? So if you see a tree or a shrub with opposite branching on it, think madcap horse. M-A-D, M is for maple. maple, A is for ash, ash. Dogwood. dogwood, cap, cap. Oh, Ooh. showing off. An expert. <laughs> <laughs> so caprifoliaceae is what? Do you remember? Viburnums. And honeysuckles. Honeysuckles. There's other stuff in there, but the small shrubs. And then horses. Horse chestnut. Horse chestnut. So when you see an opposite branching deciduous tree, you can immediately narrow it down to maple, ash, dogwood, horse chestnut, or members of caprifoliaceae. And we so. do have, Sorry. we do have a maple that looks a lot like poison ivy, but again, it's going to be opposite. It's um, Acer negundo, um, box, box elder, yeah. Box elder, and, ash leaf maple. And I've been walking by it before because there's some areas, I think there's a place called, was it Buckhorn? Well, in Grand Island? Yeah, in Grand Island. There's huge poison ivy over there, and it's almost, it's like branching, it's so big. And in my mind, I always know it's possible to have branching poison ivy. So sometimes I'm walking and I like brush up against something. I'm like, oh, oh, okay, okay. It's just fox elder. It's a no big deal. But uh, it's definitely a good thing to be on the, the lookout for. Yeah. Since you're mentioning poison ivy, do you want to mention deadly nightshade? Sure. Go ahead. What about it? <laughs> pretty little, it's got a pretty little yellow. So the, flower the flowers are touch me, touch me, pick me. purple and yellow, right? Yep, yep, yep. And then uh, it gets a bright red cluster of berries. Mm -hmm. So it tends to climb. And but a really like cool looking leaf. Different. It, has a mm. it has a leaf that looks just like poison ivy, but then two little ones. Mm -hmm. Just the two little basal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love those. It it says, it pick me, touch me. <laughs> so it's a member of the nightshade family. <laughs> Tomatoes. Uh, you can and find it in your yard. So this is one I have to look up. But the story that I've heard, maybe someone can confirm this. I heard that because there are so many poisonous plants in the nightshade family, that people used to think tomatoes were poisonous, and that it was Thomas Jefferson who showed people that tomatoes, even though they're a member of the nightshade family, they're not poisonous, and that there was a plot by the British in the Revolutionary War to kill George Washington, and they fed him tomatoes, and he didn't die. <laughs> and they thought, oh, nothing can kill this guy. Yeah, but did they feed him enough tomatoes? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad you said that, because <laughs> when we stopped here, who found the, the newt? Okay. We found a, an eastern spotted newt in its red eft form. So if you've ever found something that looks like a salamander, but it's bright orange with spots on the back, those red spots, that's a red spotted newt, an eastern newt. Mm -hmm. It's the one that people see because it's the only terrestrial part of its life cycle. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, oh, that's poisonous. The question, though, whenever you hear someone tell you something's poisonous, a skeptical question should immediately pop into your head. Repeat after me. How poisonous is it? <laughs> right? Because everyone says, oh, milkweed is poisonous, right? How poisonous is it? Very good. Very good. You probably have to eat like several plants for it to really start to, to hurt you. And there are forms of milkweed when it is edible. So an eastern newt, the red spotted newt, again, you probably have to eat, you know, a bowlful for it to start to affect you. But... <laughs> it's poisonous, so it makes it taste bad. And that's one reason we think that it is colored orange. That's a warning color. Now, if usually you see something that's brightly colored in nature, that can be a warning, saying, don't eat me. 
not good to eat. So. Yeah, they're so easy to find for a reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, someone just—you—you uh, you were just one of you guys was asking about the the um, milkweed or someone. I've never someone? heard that it's poisonous. I've well, so so this isn't something that I've done extensive research in myself. But the thing that's associated with milkweeds the most, monarchs—they mm -hmm. uh, get their toxicity from uh, consuming the plant. So, and I'm pretty sure that that's something they know because I think you can raise them not, or no, you can't raise them not a milkweed, or can you? You can't raise the caterpillars without milkweed. Right, but okay. that's, their toxicity comes from their larval food plant. So the caterpillars ingest so much of the sap that it makes them toxic to birds. Mm -hmm. So they usually eat one, they throw up and they know. The monarch don't get toxic to, you know, a butterfly. The caterpillars aren't. The caterpillars aren't. Aren't toxic? No, he said not till they become the butterfly. Oh, so who said that? Yeah. The monarch. The, mar the monarch man. Yes. Oh, all right. Interesting. So yeah. I don't know if everyone heard that. The monarch man said the caterpillars aren't toxic, not until they go through metamorphosis right, yeah. and turn into the butterfly. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. So we are we are running a little bit low on time. We had a jumping off point that we wanted to go with, and that we heard that people have been have seen bears. Maybe we wanted to jump off with this story a little bit. Sure. Well, let me ask you this: Do bears hibernate? Whoa. <laughs> Some do, okay, let's narrow it down. Do black bears hibernate? No. Sort of. Oh. All right. Who said sort of? <laughs> well, one thing that we've discovered in, in, in doing the podcast is nine times out of ten, it's not a clear yes or no. When I was trained, I was taught that there are seven sleepers in Western New York, the mammals, right? So. Who are who would be considered true hibernators? No. Porcupines. Woodchuck. Was it? Porcupines. So jumping mice. Someone said jumping mice. Woodchuck, obviously the groundhog. Woodchuck and groundhog are the same animal. Some kinds of bats. So those. Okay, she's gonna fight you. Okay. Go ahead. This was on our New York State Marathon test. That she just talked. Are true hibernators. All right. So, and you know what? I haven't looked into it, so I'll tell you what I was taught. And those guys are pretty good, so. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like. DEC. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have any funding. <laughs> all right, um, so I was taught that those are the three true hibernators where all of their metabolic processes slow way down. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about a chipmunk is they do have to wake up to eat because they don't build up a huge layer of fat. They actually sleep. <laughs> on a big bed of food. So they have to wake up and periodically eat. So now this is, it's been a long time since I've looked into chipmunks, but I was taught that they enter hibernation, but then they also come out of it. So they don't sleep through the entire winter. And, and that's also to say, I mean, we should also mention that hibernating animals do come out of their hibernation periodically, but part of it is to sleep, which is kind of weird to think about. Most people think about when you hibernate, Think, oh, that'd be great just to go to sleep in the fall, right? And you sleep all winter long. But when we looked into it, hibernation is not sleep. Their brain activity, it's almost the same as waking. The best analogy I came up with was hibernation is like trying to sleep on an airplane. Okay? It's like the worst kind of sleep you could possibly get. And what they found is that very often, especially near the end of hibernation, animals have to bring their metabolic rates up a little bit so then they can go to sleep and then when they come out of it they'll go back into a hibernation state and strangely enough their fat reserves are mostly used or proportion disproportionately used during those waking periods yeah. so you think oh it's just to get them like they slowly go through it the entire winter and that's kind of true but it, they go through it a lot faster when they come up 
to come out of hibernation, then it goes back down, yeah. and they burn less when they go back into hibernation because their bodies are close to freezing. Sure. Like they're right around freezing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Why is it that our brain needs so much glucose? And so supposedly animals' brains would need glucose and that their brain is active the whole time they're hibernating. Right. That's why we want to study bears, so we That's can travel right. the stars. Honestly. <laughs> so we have the woodchuck. Uh, the jumping mouse and the bat, the chipmunk, when I was taught, rides the fence, but if you want to we put it in that group. We were none of those, and the team went to states. Okay. <laughs> and, well, let me, let me finish. Let me finish. And then you guys share what you learned, all right? Well, we're going to just have to take this back. Okay. <laughs> and then what we call the deep sleepers are the skunk, the raccoon, and the bear. So these are animals right. that go into states of we sleep, back you on that. but it's not, <laughs> it's not deep hibernation. Now, the bear is exceptional because the bear for six or seven months out of the year right they enter a state that is hibernation like unlike the raccoon and the skunk the other deep sleepers bears do not eat or defecate for all of that hibernation time i think they urinate a little bit maybe i think it's I heard, a tiny it's, it's tiny a, we, when we looked into it it was a very small amount yeah. yeah it was like it was like a few teaspoons uh, <laughs> yeah we all do that at night, right? Yeah. <laughs> so take, take everything Bill says with a... With a yes. <laughs> so the cool thing that bears have done is when, we, when researchers would think about hibernation, it was breathing rate, heart rate, temperature, all of these things dropped. Bears have figured out, or they've evolved some way to separate temperature where they don't have a big drop in temperature. Their temperature goes down a little bit but their breathing and their heart rate does go way down. So they've somehow evolved to separate those things. We always thought that hibernation was this kind of total metabolic drop. Bears, no. So I, I don't think we can split animals easily into certain groups. You really gotta look at an animal. So when someone asks you, do black bears hibernate? It's like, sort of, yeah. right? But the cool part is like Steve said, we need to study bears because they've figured out how not to go to the bathroom, how to recycle their waste. You know, if you sat in the same spot for six months, what's going to happen to your bones and your muscles? They're going to atrophy. Bears have figured out a way where their bones do not, that does not happen to their bones. And actually, as they get older, their bones get stronger. So somehow they have figured that out. If we could do that, could you imagine space travel? Bears are also interesting because they're bears, not because we can use them for stuff. That's so. right. <laughs> That's right. Don't, don't they nurse during the young while they're hibernating? Their young are born. They yeah. come out of it. Their bear, their their cubs are born, and they go back to hibernation, if you want to call it that. <laughs> and then the the young just suckle on mom, and by the time mom wakes up, the cubs are big enough to follow her out of the den. Wow. Wouldn't that be a great way to? <laughs> but what about the porcupine? Porcupine, not they they're just active all winter long. So, yeah. No. So that's black, black bears. bears. Yeah. That's black bears. So we're talking about those seven sleepers I talked about was Western York. You go to other parts of the world, it's mm -hmm. different. Like a black bear in Virginia, where it's much milder climate, would have a different routine. Right. Probably, mm -hmm. and I'm not even sure if, if they would enter that that hibernation state. I, I don't know. Yeah, things are way different when you have the same population taking up the whole, let's just say, eastern half of the U.S. Because so many species tend to do that. Very often, you get things in the south doing things much differently than things in the north, or at least 
altering it a bit. I was in the Everglades um, in January and we countered a mother bear and her two cubs January 5th. So mm -hmm. running around. <laughs> yeah, and, and our time's running low, but I, I just wanted to bring up an anecdote that I think is kind of a, definitely encapsulates a lot of what we've been talking about, about the importance of, of body temperature and metabolism. Uh, again, from, actually this is from Bern Heinrich. He's a professor up in the University of Maine uh, he also writes a lot of great books. Awesome nature books. Yeah, and um, so like The Trees in My Forest, The Year in the Maine Woods, uh, Mind of the Raven. There's a lot of great books that this guy writes. And one of the anecdotes he shares is that you guys know bats are in trouble for the most part. There's a lot of, a lot of bad things happening with bat populations, uh, white nose syndrome and, and, and a lot of other problems. He was talking about an attempt to protect the bats. And what they did was they found this colony, this overwintering site, where the bats were hibernating and they put a sign in front of the entrance where there was a gap so the bats could get out if they needed to but it it actually insulated the cave just enough to where the temperature in the cave increased ever so slightly speeding up the metabolism of the bats and it ended up being a big die off of bats so it was people trying to do a good thing and they knew a little bit but you know the, sometimes knowing a little bit is worse than knowing nothing at all sometimes and and, and they meant well but unfortunately th this is a lesson that hopefully bats. we have to learn from you know and, right. and and so we're doing a lot of bad things so we have to do good things to try to mitigate our our impacts on on these species but we definitely have to learn from our failures too that was an example how we talked about hibernation that was an example of you know the seven sleepers that's something i always took as gospel but when you delve into it, all of these topics are so much more complex, which is frustrating for some people. But for us, it just it just makes it that much more interesting. Yeah, and it's also important to note that we made all this stuff up. <laughs> and no, not not me and Bill, but 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 it's so nature isn't gonna do what we want it to do. It's gonna do what it's gonna do, and and we have to change our understanding of it. So, so our understanding fits what's actually happening. And and I have to say, like as far as the seven sleepers go. I know when I'm working with kids, I still teach them about the seven sleepers. Because I think it's good, especially with young people, if you're trying to get them into nature, you want to give them things they can wrap their head around. I'm not going to talk to them about bears have evolved to figure out a way to separate temperature depression from <laughs> other metabolic functions, right? Mm. That's a snoozer. So <laughs> seven sleepers, it sounds much better, right? It's sexier. So. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> but then if they have that passion, then they're going to discover the nuances as they get older. Yeah. So definitely. But that episode we did on hibernation, it was an early one. Steve came up with the title. Oh, high bear nation. There high we go. Bear, bear nation. Yeah. 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 Just took me a minute. Everyone loved it. <laughs> but that episode, like, it opened my eyes to so much the complexity that is hibernation. You know, you just think, oh, animals just go to sleep for the winter time. And it's so beautifully complex. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. All, right. All right, so maybe we should start turning we should around. Start heading yeah. back. Well, we're gonna still talk along Bern, the way. Burned Heinrich. Let me go. B E R N D. All right. Folks, we want to say thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. We weren't really sure how this was gonna go. We had an idea in our head. I hope you found it enjoyable. If you have advice on on how we could make this walk better, please let us know. Like after the walk, we love criticism mm -hmm. we have tissues for steve in the car if yeah he gets upset <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> but really pull your punches if you're gonna talk about me guys no because <laughs> i thought this was great i'd like to do it again next yeah, it, was, year. it was a lot yeah. of fun yeah, yeah. 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 thank you, thank you.
All right. Great. Do it again. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of the pilgrimage, folks. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll see you around. Yeah.